Our scripture reading this morning is Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we, that are dead to sin, live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him, For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness 
unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So far we read God's holy word. Based on that and many other passages of God's word is the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 16. There the Catechism will explain the Apostles' Creed, our confession where we speak of Jesus Christ, dead, buried, and descending into hell. So the Catechism in question 40 asks, why is it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because with respect to the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. Why was he also buried? Thereby to prove that he was really dead. Since then Christ died for us, why must we also die? Our death is not a satisfaction for our sins, but only an abolishing of sin and a passage into our eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice of Christ on the cross? that by virtue thereof our old man is crucified, dead, and buried with him. So that, that so, the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Why is there added, he descended into hell? That in my greatest temptations, I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ, by His inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies in which He was plunged during all His sufferings, but especially on the cross, hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Catechism continues to explain our confession concerning the saving work of Jesus Christ in particular, his humiliation. The question 40 makes that plain when it says, why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? His humiliation. 
The Catechism has explained the humiliation, the first step of humiliation being Jesus coming into the flesh, His incarnation. Then secondly, His suffering, including His crucifixion, His suffering all His life long, which we considered last week. And we saw that Jesus suffered as a representative of His people. We saw that there are three things in particular that characterize the suffering of Jesus Christ. One, that it was a satisfaction of the justice of God. Secondly, that it was a substitution for His people. And thirdly, it was for a specific people, His elect people. In this way, Jesus paid for our sins. And He earned a righteousness which is imputed to us. Lord's Day 16, which we consider today, completes the exposition of of Christ's humiliation, looking at His death, His burial, and His descent into hell. Those are the five steps, then, of Christ's humiliation. We look at the last three today. As we consider these doctrines, I call your attention to some difficulties that need to be faced. The first difficulty that we face is just understanding what these things mean. How could God in the flesh, God, experience the things that the Catechism describes here? How could God suffer God's wrath How could he die and be buried and descend into hell? What what does that mean? That's the first difficulty. Second difficulty is that we are so familiar with these truths and that part of Jesus' life that we can lose the awe and the wonder of what Jesus really did, what He endured, what He accomplished. From our youth, we've been told the stories about Jesus' birth, His life, His suffering, His crucifixion, His burial. We know all those stories. And they can become almost ordinary Stories like the stories of George Washington or the stories of American history. They're, yeah, of course we know that. This is what happened. We can, we can say exactly what happened in Jesus' life. If we do not this morning stand with open-mouthed amazement at what Jesus did, what He endured, what He accomplished, then the fault is in us. It's rooted in a failure, first of all, to see how horrible we really are. What sin really is, what our guilt really is, and what Jesus had to do to save us from our sin. If we do not see the horribleness of what we are and our sins, then the death of Jesus Christ will not mean that much. 
message to us. That's to our shame. At the same time, we do not always see how much God hates sin. It's so much part of our life. And we see wicked, wicked, wicked sinners, and we see ourselves in our sin, and God doesn't smite us to the ground. Does God really hate sin? Is He really that much furious when people sin against Him? We forgot. He is. He absolutely hates sin with such an infinite, eternal hatred. But there are people in hell who will stay there for an eternity bearing God's infinite wrath. And that's what Jesus had to endure. Perhaps it's good for us just to get a small picture of that. To think of how when the ten tribes departed from God, how God sent the Assyrians and simply destroyed the nation and the ten tribes were no more. Or how, as we talked last week in Lamentations, how God sent the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem, lay it waste, His own beloved city, His own temple, because of the sins of Judah. God hates sin. His wrath is terrible. May God give us that awe this morning, leading then to a gratitude for what God has done for us. Let's consider this Lord's Day then under the theme, the unspeakably terrible, but blessing bestowing death. Unspeakably terrible, but blessing bestowing death. And then we'll just notice the three things. Jesus' death, first of all. Secondly, His burial. And thirdly, His descent into hell. Why did Jesus have to die? Death is a terrible thing. It's ugly. Why did Jesus have to die? He came into this world to save His people, but salvation from some great evil does not ordinarily require that someone die. A great king would come and deliver an oppressed people from some horrible tyrant, but that doesn't mean the king who delivers them has to die. A rich man could go and purchase slaves out of their, their bondage and set them free, but he doesn't have to die in order to deliver them. A doctor saves people from some pretty bad situations, some agony, some trouble, but he doesn't have to die in order to save them. Why did Jesus have to die in order to save His people? He certainly did humble Himself, 
by coming into the world in the form of a lowly servant. He is God in the flesh. He is the person of the Son of God. Why did he need to die? Why did he have to go to that extent of humiliation in order to save us from our sins? The Catechism says there is no other way. There is no other way for Jesus to save us. Why was it necessary for Jesus to humble himself even to this extent that he had to die? That's the first question of the Lord's Day we consider. And the answer is, with respect to the truth and justice of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way. He had to die. Because of the truth and justice of God, he had to die. We saw last week that satisfaction had to be made. The justice of God had to be satisfied. The full payment for sin had to be made. But now the Catechism says that included that he had to die. So let's look at those two things the Catechism says. According to the truth of God and according to the justice of God, that satisfaction could be made in no other way than Jesus had to die. First of all, truth of God is about the things God says. Is God a truthful God? Or does He lie? He doesn't lie. So what is it about the truth of God that required that Jesus had to die? Well, first of all, it's the truth of God's Word to Adam. When God said to Adam, in the day that thou eatest thereof, Thou shalt surely die. That was God's word. Is it true? Absolutely it's true. That's the punishment for sin. Physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. That's the punishment for sin. The other part of God's truth is the promise throughout the Old Testament that the one who would save his people from their sin would die in it. God made that plain already in the very first promise of a Savior, the seed of the woman whose heel would be bitten by a deadly poisonous snake. That already implies death. But God made it plain even more when He said, Look at the sacrifice of this animal and how this lamb has to be put to death as a part of a covering of your sin. The life of the animal is given in place of your life, indicating that the, the Savior, the true Lamb of God that was coming, would have to die. That was God's truth expressed throughout the Old Testament. In addition to that, we read Isaiah 53 last week, and Isaiah 53 makes it very plain that the servant of the Lord will die. He will die. That was God's truth. The truth, first of all, Adam, when you sin, you will die. The truth, secondly, 
The one who will save you will die. That's what God's Word said through the Old Testament. This Word of God is true. First of all, the punishment is absolutely true. In Genesis chapter 3, after Adam sinned, and then God spoke the word of judgment on Adam, Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 17, unto Adam God said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of the which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and also in thistles shall it bring forth unto thee, and thou shalt eat the herb in the field. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. You will die. Death happened when Moses, when, when Adam fell into sin. And they could see it in all their life. Their trouble, their sorrow, their, own, their one son killing their other son. It was death. It was sorrow. God's wrath brought death. And you see that just a couple of chapters later. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 17, where God said to Noah, Behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh which is under the, which, wherein is there a breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. The same thing happened when the angel of death came to Egypt and killed the firstborn of every Egyptian. Even the cattle. They died. And then when Pharaoh came after Israel in the Red Sea, his whole host died. God's wrath brings death. God's truth is that the sinner must die. That's what Ezekiel says. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. We read it in Romans chapter 6. The wages of sin is death. The truth of God is death is part of the punishment. Second, the justice of God, says the Catechism. What? Why did Jesus have to die? Well, because of the truth of God, but secondly, because of the justice of God. The justice of God is involved in this because the penalty for breaking the law is death. It would not be enough for Jesus to come into the world and bear the eternal wrath of God and then say on the cross, it is finished, and then simply be taken up into heaven. That would not have satisfied the justice of God. That would not have done it. Because the justice of God says the full punishment for our sin must be borne by Jesus. And the full punishment includes physical death. 
Accordingly, Jesus died. His body, born of Mary, was mortal, just as our bodies are mortal. He endured death. That terrible, ugly, tearing apart of body and soul. Jesus gave up the ghost, we read. That's the way the Bible puts it. He died. His soul went to heaven. His body hung there on the cross. He died. He was torn apart. The soldiers came at the command of Pilate to take the men down and to break their legs and then throw their bodies into the dump. And they went to the, the one thief and they broke his legs and took him down and went to the other thief and broke his legs and took him down. And they came to Jesus and said, well, there's no need here. He is dead. Now, question 42 expresses a bit more of the benefit of Jesus dying. When it asks the question, well, if Jesus died, why must we die. He, he bore the punishment. That was our punishment. He died in our place. He fully satisfied the justice of God. So then why do we have to die? And the answer of the catechism is, is very helpful. It says, first of all, we'll keep this in mind. Your death is not a satisfaction for sin. Nothing of your death is a payment for your sin. That's been done. There isn't anything that you add to that payment of Jesus. It's absolutely finished. So when you die, you must not think, well, this is a punishment for my sin. And somehow I am I'm paying for my sins here as I die. It's a consequence of sin, but it's not a payment. It's not a payment. He took all our guilt. He bore the wrath. He absolutely finished everything God required to pay for our sins. So then, our death actually becomes a blessing in two ways. The Catechism says, it's not a satisfaction for sin, but, and here's the two parts, it's an abolishing of sin and a passage into eternal life. First of all, your death will be an abolishing of sin. When you breathe your last on this earth, that will be the last second that sin ever touches you, ever is a part of you. We can't even imagine that. Sin pollutes everything. Sin pollutes our prayers. Sin pollutes our worship here in church. Sin corrupts the father's leading of his family. Sin corrupts the way a mother cares for her children. Sin pollutes every single lesson that a teacher gives in the classroom. Sin corrupts every single assignment that the student brings in and hands in to the teacher. And every student is constantly sinning on the playground. Sin 
always there. Sin corrupts our thoughts. Even our holiest thoughts. So that when we're thinking something holy about God. Suddenly horrible wickedness comes into our mind. And pollutes it. Think of how sin corrupts our words. How easy it is to backbite. To slander. Even to take God's name in vain. Or to deceive someone. That's sin. We are constantly battling sin. Death ends that. Death ends it. The man of sin dies. The old man of sin that we have is part of this earthly, sin-cursed world. He cannot go into heaven. He cannot go with us into heaven, which is a place of perfect righteousness and holiness. He doesn't belong there. Only righteousness goes into heaven. When we die, sin dies in us. It is laid in the grave, never again to rise. The body will rise. The body will be raised immortal. Glorious, perfect, sinless. Whereas death was God's punishment and still is for those who are not in Jesus, since He didn't die for the world, He didn't die for every single person, those who are not in Jesus still look at death as a punishment, and it is. But it's no longer a punishment for us. It's deliverance. God's way of killing that old man of sin that we carry around with us every moment of our lives, of stripping us entirely of sin, it's defilement, it's our inclination toward sin, our ability to sin. It's gone. Gone at the moment of death. Second, says the Catechism, death is passageway into eternal life. I'm not going to develop that much because when you get to the Catechism's instruction on Jesus' resurrection and how, how that affects us, eternal life, that, that's when that can be developed. But the reality is that death does transfer us immediately into eternal life. We leave behind this world with all of its sin and trouble and sorrow and corruption and immediately are brought into the presence of God before Jesus Christ and have blessed, perfect fellowship with Him. That's life. That's eternal life. Living with God in fellowship through Jesus Christ. While Jesus' death was for Him, Humiliation, the third step of his lowering for us bestows upon us unspeakable blessings, glory, changing our death from punishment into a passageway into glory. A truth is seen in Jesus. Burial. 
Jesus was buried. Now, all the children know that. You know Jesus was buried. You know how that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came to Pilate and asked him if they might take the body of Jesus. And they were given permission, so they took Jesus' body down from the cross and they carefully wrapped it in the linen cloth that they had purchased. And then they laid him in Joseph's own tomb and rolled the stone in front of it. And the soldiers stood outside the tomb where Jesus was buried. And the next and Sunday morning when the ladies came there to anoint the body, the angel said, Behold the place where he laid. Jesus was buried. He was buried. Why was Jesus buried? We have seen that he had to die. But after Jesus died, wouldn't it have been just fine then that he would have been revived? God gave him life and and so he's delivered. He's able to go to heaven right then and there. Why did he have to be buried? The catechism says he had to be. And the answer of the catechism, first of all, is why was he buried, is thereby to prove that he was really dead. There could be no doubt about Jesus being dead. He was in the grave for parts of three days. He was dead. The door of the sepulcher was sealed and guarded. There's no question about it. Jesus died. The grave has a certain finality about it. We all know that. If we've, when we bury our loved ones, going to the grave and having that casket go down into the ground is one of the most difficult things because that's the last connection to that person. He no longer has a place on the earth. He is buried. He is cut off from us. Cut off from this earth. The grave has that finality to it. Jesus was dead and buried. But there are reasons why Jesus had to, be da- had to be buried than what the catechism says here, merely to prove that he was dead, though that's true. But Jesus came to endure the full punishment that you and I deserve. And that included the grave. The grave is part of death. It's part of death. And it's part of that humiliation of Jesus coming into this world in the form of a servant, suffering, dying. But now the grave, the grave is another step down because Jesus is life. Think about that. The one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who said, the Father hath given to the Son that He would have life in Himself. So the one who says, I am life, is now put in the place of death. The grave is a place of corruption. It's where the body smells and it it becomes corrupt and, and it breaks apart. Jesus would endure everything that we deserve 
including the grave. And yet there's more. More reasons why Jesus had to be buried. And this one is crucial. And that is that Jesus had to make a way out of the grave into heaven. God told Adam, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. You will return to the dust, Adam. You will be buried in the ground. And that's it. There's no way out of that. That only leads to hell. It can't possibly lead to heaven. Jesus would open a way out of the grave. He would destroy not only the bands of death, that were holding him, but he would destroy the bands of the grave. He would make a way out of the grave so that his people could follow him into heaven. He had to be buried to destroy the power of the grave for his people. What benefit there is it therefore for us that Jesus was buried? And for that, turn to question 43, where it asks, what further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? You know, it's looking at the whole thing, his sacrifice, his death, his burial, all of that. What, what benefit do we get from all of that? And the answer of the catechism is that by virtue thereof, our old man is crucified, dead, and buried with him. Crucified, dead, and buried with him. As the grave indicated the certainty that Jesus had died fully bearing the punishment that we deserve. There's the, there's the ultimate proof. The fact also testifies to the certainty of the death our old man of sin. That's the point of the catechism. The old man of sin is the principle of sin which we have, which we, what we are by nature. Romans chapter 7, which we didn't read, Romans 7 speaks of the fact that in my flesh, that is, that in me that is in my flesh, there dwelleth no good thing. Nothing good in my flesh. That's that old man of sin. The believer has a new life, a life of Jesus, a life that he gets with regeneration. That life is holy, but that old man of sin, that flesh, is corrupt and vile till the day we die. That old man is it's our body. It's our mind, it's our will, it's our emotions. They are vile and corrupt. The believer therefore looks at himself with dismay. Romans chapter 7, verse 15, we read this. Oops. Romans 7, verse 15. For that which I do... I allow not. That's not the best translation. More literally, it's this. What I accomplish, I do not recognize. That is to say, 
I had this desire. It's what I wanted to do. It was good. It was holy. I wanted to serve God. And so I did it. And now I look at it and I don't even recognize it. This isn't what I wanted to do. Look at the corruption. Look at the sin that's attached to it. This is not what I wanted. I wanted something to be holy unto God, but here is here's what I've done. I don't even recognize it. It's so vile and perverse. So, what I would, what I want to do, I do not. But what I hate, that I do. That's that old man of sin. So powerful. So powerful. Isn't that your experience? Isn't that exactly what our life is like? That we do have that desire within us to do what is good, and then we look back at the end of the day and we said, well, where is it? Look at all the sin. Look at all the corruption. That's not what I wanted to do this morning when I got up. That's because of that old man of sin. Completely wicked. But now you see that you do have a new life, and that new life has to work through that old nature. Has to work through the mind that is corrupt. Has to work through the will that is prone. To work through this body which is an instrument of sin. Has to work through that in order to do what is good and right. Apart from the life of Christ, without that life of Christ now, a person born into this world lives and dies, and that old man of sin is all he is. Totally corrupt. Even the believer faces a struggle. So that he says, the good that I would, I do not. The evil which I would not, that I do. And it can be so horrible that he can cry out with the Apostle Paul, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? So horrible is that old man of sin. Romans 6, which we read, teaches that that old man of sin is crucified, dead, and buried with Christ. Romans 6, verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him Buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That old man of sin was crucified with him. It died with him. So verse 6 says, know that, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth we should not serve sin. That's the new life we have. Now that death of the old man, yes, is in principle. 
It's in principle. It's not a finished, finished work that he lies dead and can't breathe any longer. It's in principle. The final death of the old man does not occur until we die. But the fact that Jesus died and was buried is a proof to us that this old man of sin, which is such a torment, which is so powerful, died with Jesus. You will not have to live with that old man of sin forever. It will someday be gone. The catechism says the fruit of that is twofold in verse 43 in, in question 43. That so the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us. That first of all. The corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us. It's still powerful, but it doesn't have complete domination. It doesn't reign in us. Now because it's still there and because it's possible for us to give in to it, we are warned, fight against it. Don't let that old man dominate you. It can. If you give in to it, it'll take over your life. Don't let it. It's still something you need to battle. You battle. You battle in victory. Christ has conquered it. Your old man. He, he conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered Satan. And He conquered sin in us. Proof given in Jesus' burial gives us hope in our struggle. Our old man of sin has been put to death in principle. And as surely as Jesus was buried, so surely do you know that one day your old man of sin too will be absolutely gone. We may call on the power of Jesus Christ who has conquered sin. Help me fight against my old man of sin. So that's the first benefit. That, that old man of sin doesn't dominate, may not dominate in us. The second benefit, says the Catechism, is that we may offer ourselves unto Him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. We may. We have that right. Jesus has opened up the way to the throne of God. We may bring our prayers to Him. We have the right to offer our lives as sacrifices to Him. That's our whole life. It should be. Romans 12. Offer your life. As a sacrifice to God. Do that. This expression of a sacrifice of thanksgiving that we offer to God is, is rather important in the controversy that we've had in our churches in the last three or four years. Because there had been a group of people who only ever wanted to speak of good works as fruits. They're only fruits. Now, that's a good illustration, fruits. 
as a tree produces fruits, so the believer produces good works. It's inevitable. It will happen. That's the beauty of it. It also says those are just fruits. You're not earning anything. You're not meriting anything. It's just the fruits of God's work in you. You're producing fruits. That's a, a very nice illustration. But that figure has a weakness. And the weakness is that that apple tree that is producing the fruit is doing it without consciousness. The apple tree is not in the springtime thinking, I need to produce apples. Apple trees don't think. They don't will. So it's a good figure, but it's not a complete figure of what the Bible says our good works are. They're a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And now that brings out the fact that this is a conscious, deliberate work of a believer. God works in us in such a way that we want to bring forth good works and offer them to God as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. That doesn't mean that suddenly now they've earned something. Of course not. That doesn't, that's not the point. The point is, it's a deliberate, conscious activity of bringing forth good works. Says the catechism, that's the fruit. That's the fruit. If you have an old man that totally dominates, you will not bring forth praises to God. But when that old man of sin is put to death, now you may and you can, by the power of God's grace, bring forth sacrifices of thanksgiving to God. That's what our good works are. Beautiful benefit of Jesus' death and burial. But Jesus not only died and was buried, he descended into hell. To understand the phrase, he descended into hell, I would call attention, first of all, to the history of the Creed a bit. The Creed was developed over three or four hundred years, very early in the, the years 200, 300, 400, and, and 500. In that period, the, the Creed developed, and it was. It was sort of a creed that would be used by a person making confession of faith. It was used to instruct the youth. But in the original creed, as it developed in the first three or four hundred years, the phrase, he descended into hell, was not there. And then about the year 500, that word, that was added. But then in the Latin, it simply said, he descended into the lower parts which isn't very clear. And through the ages, a lot of wrong ideas have come up with the phrase, he descended into hell. There are those who have taught that Jesus died and was buried. And then for three days, Satan continued to afflict him until finally Jesus won the battle and got rid of Satan. There are those who have thought that 
this phrase means that Jesus went down into hell. And maybe he there preached the gospel and gave people a a last chance to be saved. Or there he just announced his victory. He went down into hell to announce the victory. Or that he went down into hell and and took out of limbo the Old Testament saints. They, They couldn't go to heaven yet because he hadn't died, so Jesus went down there and took them out. All of those ideas are wrong. There's nothing in the Bible to support those wrong ideas. So there's two ideas that are perfectly legitimate when you understand the fr- to understand the phrase, he descended into hell. The first is that which is adopted by the Westminster Confession of Faith. And the Westminster Confession of Faith says what this means is Jesus descended into the lower parts of the hell, of, of the earth rather, and there he remained in the grave for three days. That's biblical. As Jonah was three days in the heart of the, in the fish, so Jesus is three days in the grave. That's perfectly legitimate. But the other view is set forth in the Heidelberg Catechism. And that is that the descent into hell is not in the order of time, that it didn't happen after he died and was buried, but that it describes the lowest point of his humiliation. And it describes not Jesus going physically into the place hell, but Jesus enduring the torments of hell. That's what the catechism sets forth. Jesus endured, body and soul, the inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies. Body and soul. That is to say, He bore that terrifying, infinite, killing wrath of God against sin, body and soul. He suffered not merely physically. Men inflicted terrible things on him. He was whipped. He was nailed to the cross. He suffered dehydration. He suffered a painful death. But in addition to that, what he suffered, body and soul, was that terrible wrath of God. Especially in his soul. Because it is in his soul that he experienced the, the part of God's wrath of being cast away into outer darkness. He had no experience in his soul of the love of God. He had only the experience of God's terrifying Wrath! Why hast thou forsaken me? He experienced being forsaken by God. That's very important that his soul experienced that. That's part of the whole of the punishment. Because the soul, you know, we, we think of the body being wicked. The body is what lies. The body steals. The body does all kinds of evil things. But the soul within is the mastermind of sin. The soul is what's directing our bodies to do the wicked things that we do. 
And therefore Jesus took the punishment of God, body and soul. That's what Jesus did for us. The benefit, says the catechism, that in my greatest temptations, I may be assured and completely, wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus delivered me from the anguish and terrors of hell. Such suffering He endured. Because He was very God, as the wrath of God, that infinite wrath of God, which no man in hell, no woman in hell, will ever finish, never finish. Jesus was able to finish it because the divine nature was upholding the human, and the human nature that was bearing that body and soul, that wrath, was being sustained by the divine. God was saving His people. And therefore it's finished. It's finished, says the catechism. He has delivered me from the anguish and terrors of hell. This is a comfort, says the catechism. It surely is. It's a comfort, first of all, in our trials. Trials, we have pain. We have suffering. But in our pain and our suffering, we are comforted, first of all, by the fact that our pain and our suffering does not begin to compare with the pain and suffering that Jesus endured for us. And at the same time, we are comforted by the fact that that pain and suffering we are enduring is not part of the punishment. It's not God's killing wrath upon us. He can be filled with wrath. He can be angry with us. But it's not the killing wrath. It's not the destroying wrath. It's a chastising wrath. That intends to bring us close to God, not throw us away. Jesus delivered us from that. You know that. No matter what trial, no matter how much the suffering may endure. We also have temptations. In our troubles, in our pain, in our suffering, Satan tries to tempt us, he does tempt us, to doubt. Doubt God's goodness. Doubt God's love for us. Doubt God's promises that He will be with us to the end. It can seem sometimes that we're forsaken, that he hasn't, He's not here, He's not with me. And then we say, yes, He is. Because Jesus bore all my punishment. He's delivered me from the anguish and terrors of hell. Holy comfort ourselves with this knowledge. He was cast away from God and forsaken so that we never would be forsaken by God. Never. I will never experience, you will never experience the killing wrath of an almighty God 
you will not awake from death in hell. No matter what the trial or temptation, I know that Jesus has saved me from that. What a blessing to have this assurance. To have the assurance that God, in fact, loves me. That He cares for me. That He is working all things for my eternal good. The love that God has is so obvious in all of this. Let's not overlook that. That Jesus would be willing to go through all of that. That God would be willing to put His Son through all of that. The Son of His love indicates how much He loves us. So this work of Christ, His humiliation, His suffering, His death, His burial, His descent into hell is the foundation of all our salvation. It's the foundation of all our comfort. And it's the source, then, is it not, of thankfulness, of a life of gratitude. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we cannot... We cannot thank Thee enough for Jesus, and we, even having heard all that we have this morning, cannot grasp all that He has done for us, all that He endured for us. But what we do understand moves us to gratitude, to joy, and to praising Thee. So may our life be a sacrifice of thanksgiving, for Jesus' sake. Amen.